We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. This is number 14 in the culture series that we are doing alongside World Strides Excel. World Strides Excel are the industry leader in international soccer tours with over 15 years experience delivering tours for a wide range of clientele. Very simple, you pick the country or countries and their experts will customize a trip that includes competitive matches, training sessions with international coaches, tickets to professional games, sightseeing and more. World Strides also offers a high level of quality support, including financial assistance, liability coverage and hassle-free travel. So really appreciate World Strides for joining us in this culture series. And coming up on this one is Jess Ibram. He is a coach with phenomenal level of insight into working with different cultures. He has been the head of academy at Wellington Football Club in New Zealand. He's also had roles with Houston Dynamo and Chelsea. He's worked as a technical director with the Cook Islands and also as a national team advisor, UEFA A license, and a lot of experience on the coach education side as well. So we're going to talk about his philosophy and how that has been impacted by working in different countries with different types of resources. We'll also talk about coach education and the value of getting different types of experiences, going abroad, working with different people in different cultures. And then we'll talk about Mexican football culture. Uh, Jess has just completed a six-week visit with Pachuca, so he gives his thoughts on how they structure their development and how the club implements different types of systems uh, tactically as well. Really, really interesting. So you're going to love this, as always. Love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Also, if you're listening to this on Cyber Monday, we're doing a special today on the website, modernsoccercoach.com. Buy one, get one free, one day only for the pressing and the college training session book. So get yourself over to modernsoccercoach.com. We're also launching the new book today, which is available for pre-order. It's out in December, Coaching Your 433, which is designed to take an in-depth look at how you can personalize your tactical system rather than copying a different one, both in terms of philosophy and then the work on the training pitch, different types of exercises, how you're designing your sessions, etc. And then also an insight into my personal experience over the past five years, which coaches have influenced me and impacted me with different ideas and concepts. Really, really enjoyed putting this one together and would love for you to check it out. ModernSoccerCoach.com, available for pre-order and will be out very soon. So thanks very much for listening. As always, love to get your thoughts. Here's Jess. Enjoy. Jess, thanks so much for joining me this morning, your time for the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Yeah, no problem at all, Gary. Really, really looking forward to the opportunity and uh, great to uh, chat with you again. Coaching philosophy, we always kick it off chatting about it. So let's have yours, Jess. What is it? So if I'm talking my own coaching philosophy, it's pretty much changed and evolved through every environment I guess I've gone into. And I've had to simplify it somewhat in, in the different environments I've worked in. If I'm just talking 
purely in the football context for me and without sounding like I'm reading it from a PowerPoint presentation. Um, I believe that players should be um, within an environment that's a structured, disciplined environment. I like to work with the players in a way whereby they're being continually challenged throughout the training session. Um, but it's all modelled around some key principles that you have in place um, that is built around your playing philosophy. That's the short version, I guess. Oh, actually, I actually want to go back to that. So when you're talking to coaches, like you've, you're drawing your philosophy based on a lot of places. Like you're, you've worked around the world at different levels. So you're within your rights to kind of take that based on a large amount of experiences. But if you're a young coach, how do you build it without taking the, the pep card almost, you know, building it based on, I want to be a possession-based coach, but I don't have a large amount of of experiences to draw from. Uh, how do you kind of get that without being generic, I suppose? Yeah, I think the, to, the key for me is you have to be very, very authentic and it has to come from you as an individual. And you're right, you can quite easily get carried away with the, the new trends, I guess, or you know, following the coaches that are uh, working at the highest level of elite football, such as Pep and Klopp and whatever. But it's all dictated around your environment, and it's around you know the, the players that you're working with on a regular basis. And and I think for me, as any young coach, having been through this as well, and it took me a number of years to get to the point where I was comfortable with, you know, how I worked within each environment I worked in gearing around my own personal philosophy it's just really staying authentic to you and what works best for you rather than modeling it on uh, environments and coaches that are probably you know more unrealistic to where you're presently working if that makes sense for sure it's it's almost like a recipe all these different places that's impacted you in different ways with your philosophy Uh, which place has had the biggest impact on you Again, like yourself, Gary, yeah, every environment you go into is completely different. I'd say I've got a very good foundation when I was in England. And every environment you work in is, you know, you you look to gain different elements. I'd say for me, it was actually New Zealand. And although New Zealand doesn't sound like a, you know, a strong football cultured country, even though it's made fantastic strides in recent years, that's probably where I really, really developed a real strong philosophy around the game. And I was just exposed to a different way with which to see the game, develop players, um, but working off one key philosophy. And I was very fortunate. I worked with someone who is actually acted as quite a strong mentor, and he still does to this day, um, a Brazilian guy. And he influenced me the most with this. And he just he just taught me in terms of just seeing the game in a completely different way that I didn't see previously, really. That culture piece going on with, the journey, the pathway. I think coaches today would laugh at a young player who said that I want to play at a, a lower level, get some experience, then move up, and then eventually play in the Premier League. Like you would just say, oh, what? Like, that's just not realistic. But as coaches, yeah. we sometimes have that. Like young coaches today, you, you almost see this. Like, oh, I want to I want to get to the professional level within, within seven or eight years. I hear that a lot today. How much of your journey as a... Again, a coach that has worked around the world at a number of levels. How much of your journey has been planned and how much of it has been, well, this happened and didn't see that and then took that opportunity or that risk? or you know, What's the balance between that? 
it's yeah it, i i guess in in this industry it's it's all about timing really and i, I although i do have a I, this has changed quite a lot in recent years for me um because i do believe that coaches should it's one of the best bits of advice i was given was from dick bay um who unfortunately just recently passed away and and he really really hit home in the fact that you know to know yourself you really need to know which direction you're going to be moving in now that can change at any point but you know it's it's almost having a a coach pathway in place whether it's a year three years five years ten years and we've all got aspirations as coaches but I guess for me a lot of my opportunities have come out of the blue and although when I moved back to England I was in the US as you know for a few years and then I, I went back to the UK um, and then I had this vision that I wanted to go abroad again and an opportunity just come out of the blue in regards to that. I was still working towards moving abroad and then subsequent opportunities have been born out of that. And it's really, for me, it's, it's, it's taking that jump. And once you take that initial, initial jump, then opportunities tend to come about. But you have to put yourself out there. I'm a firm believer of it, you know, and I know we're going to talk about just a recent experience um, that I just had, but you really have to put yourself out there as much as possible. Um, and they haven't really been pre-planned in terms of the countries that I've worked in. They've sort of just been born out of other opportunities. How do you put yourself out there if you're a if you're a young coach? Because I get this a lot, and I this is a question I struggle to answer. Is you know how can I open myself up for more opportunities? Because I was never the person on the coaching courses that was in the front row and that was at the social speaking to everyone. Uh, so just wondering from your point of view and someone who is extremely well connected, how you've gone through that process or where have you been deliberate the most? Yeah, and no, I'm still doing it to this day. I guess really it's just um, trying to develop relationships with you know people of real true worth. Again, it comes back to being very authentic and honest and not looking at any specific angle or anything like that. It's just really just, just being honest with people and saying, you know how you know how how can we connect initially? Can can I spend time talking with you? And but it's it, it can be quite tiring because it's just to put yourself out there to enable you to get opportunities down the line. You really really have to put yourself out there quite a lot. I didn't come from any strong playing background, um, you know, and you know I'm not I'm not like an ex professional twenty years or whatever else. So you really really you're playing catch up in this industry as well to a degree because you haven't come from that background. So it's you have to prove your worth and you have to really, really be as authentic as possible and you know, just look to try and gain as much trust with people as, as, as you can, really. And I've been fortunate. I've created some really, really good relationships and, and across the social media platforms as well. I think that's very, very key as well. You've taken your, your UEFA, your USSF, your experience on coach education is, is vast. What were you like in those courses? Were you the person sitting at the back, or were you the person that was in the middle of everything? Uh, no, I'd say I was. I was the person at the back, um, but I was completely engaged all the time. And it, you know, you go through like yourself. You go through those courses, and you know they're challenging in different ways. I mean, that's the reason why I wanted to do the US licenses because I just. It was a completely different environment, completely different challenge, and I'm a big believer you should look to continually do that as much as possible. But I'd say no, I was I was very much one of those students that was um, sat at the back but completely engaged with what was 
what was going on, but you know, be but ready to um, you know, jump forward and ask questions. But I wouldn't say I was one of those people that was, you know, in front of the tutor all the time, really. It's just mm-hmm. yeah. Cook Island's technical director fascinated by trying to build a style of play and, and doing things the right way and trying to build a tactical identity in a country with less resources than others. How do you balance between building a possessional game, but then maybe not having the players at a certain level or maybe not having the resources or maybe being the underdog constantly? Yeah. Really simplifying your methods. If I'm being completely honest, I mean, the Cook Islands was, I believe at the time was the second smallest member association in FIFA. The population where I was in the main island was 14,000, to give you an idea. And so, although probably 90 to 95% of the national team players actually came from that island. And it, and it's all about balance for me. And you're right, in terms of trying to focus on a possession-based game for us was was very difficult, just down to the fact of the, the level of development the country was at. And... It was it was completely different to anything that I'd encountered previously, um, but in another way, you can really impact very quickly by just really simplifying the game tactically, and that's what we done. And it was very much very simple. In possession, we do this. Out of possession, we do this. Um, and it was just um, a, a simple way to structure the game built around the players that you had, which were limited in terms of international football. Um, and as a result of that, and I believe it, you know, in terms of when you do go into environments like that, it's very much you have to simplify your methods as much as possible. Then you can achieve a level of success as well. Then, and you know, as a country, they're never going to qualify for a World Cup. But they, my job, I guess, was to make them more competitive at the international level, certainly at the youth youth level, anyway. But it wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah, but that's so that's so similar to. Stephen Constantine's message and you know as I tried to jab at him about hey was it the difficulty of you know not having the technical ability to play the state of play in these different countries and he was really adamant about the fact that you don't need like organization and I, it gets me thinking that do we do we kind of overvalue talent and undervalue what we can do with an organized dynamic group uh, that's together. Do you know what I mean? Because it's almost the card that everyone plays at these coach education events. Someone puts something on that's really good, but almost a throwaway comment from a lot of people as well. It doesn't apply to me. I don't have those players, but you don't need that, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it is. It's just been it's it's been realistic to what you can achieve, you know. And for for us, it was um, for us, it was just to be competitive in the, at the international level, and and it was difficult because. Say for an example, being we played New Zealand in the youth international fixture, and um, you know if we would have gone out there and, and played an expansive brand of football and tried to maintain possession, and and it was four three three, and um, we were trying to overload and whatever else, then you know the result would have been horrendous. If I'm being completely honest with you, so it was, you know, you, it was really really focusing on you know what we can achieve and being realistic in the sense of. You know, we're not going to beat New Zealand. It's, it's that that is not going to happen. But how can we be best competitive and setting us up in the right way, um, tactically, that we can you know perform and get a a respectable result at the end of it? 
um, which we managed to do, you know, on one occasion at least anyway. Let's talk about coach education and, and your experience with that there. Would it be better to get our coaches experience in a different country um, at some part of their coach development where they would have to go and shift yeah. their their views of the game or their way of communicating it? I just think to be exposed to, you know, a different learning environment. Um, and, and, you know, if, if I'm looking from the outside, looking in at the moment, um, you know, I believe that, you know, MLS Academy directors, they, they do get exposure. I think they go to the French Football Federation, but that's obviously a, um, a, a small amount of coaches that are going overseas. But also, it, it's difficult because I, I, I think that um, in the US, there's, there's, there's so many clubs, there's so many different levels working at, working in so many different directions and in so many different ways. You know, and there's so many. There's some really, really big clubs that are probably bigger than, you know, MLS academies, which there is. Um, I just, I just don't think they're. You know, they're very much. They've. They're very set within what, how they see their clubs should develop, but you know, if getting back to the actual, um, answer to the question, I'm just a firm believer that coaches should be exposed to, to different environments, and that's that's what I've done. You know, but I've taken it upon myself. You know, no one's really presented that opportunity for me. From a personal level, what what did you enjoy most about that role? Was it the environment, putting the environment together? Was it your you having to adapt as a person, or was it the time on the grass? Um, I mean, I was very fortunate because the president supported me, and you know, when I initially um, kickstarted a lot of these national academies that were operating, I was on the grass five, six times a week. So. You know, you have a real sense of you actually impacting players in the country because because the level is so low. Um, in a lot of these countries where the, the 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 level of football is so low, you can actually have a real strong impact. So for me, you know, I was very fortunate. I was on the grass five six days a week, um, but just having the opportunity to to create something that um, you know ultimately can be taken on in the future, and it has been. You know, there's there's continuity now. There is a succession plan, and you know, even though I'm not there, it's still operating. But it would just be operating in a different way. We had Jack Brazil on here a while ago, and he was talking about the the challenges with punctuality of players. Was I heard his podcast? Yeah, <laughs> I can I can relate. <laughs> I mean, how did you deal with that, or how do you deal with that? I'm just uh, I would really struggle with that. It's it's interesting because again, you come from an environment. And you know, an elite football environment like when I was at Wellington Phoenix, and and it was you know players are there early, you know players are there, you know thirty forty minutes before the session starts anyway, so you know they're ready to go. But then you, you you go to a different environment, and again you know I, I encountered exactly exactly the same. You know training might be at four thirty, but then players you know will sporadically be getting there at different points. You know it could be four twenty, four thirty, four forty. And I really had to adapt, but I would say that I adapted, but didn't really. I wasn't. I wasn't comfortable in really letting go of my um, the structure of which how I was going to run the session. So for me, example being, if four thirty was the session time that the session was going to start, I'd start at four thirty, whether it was two players or twelve players, and it was interesting 
and again I'm, I can only talk of my experience I know it's different in every culture and country but as time went on players actually brought into that and you know I remember just you know my last few sessions it would, it would be four 32, 434, and I had 16, 18 players that were all ready to train it. But that was because it was created. But you have to create it in the right way rather than, rather than a real regimented um, disciplinarium and saying, right, this is it. Boom. It was just a very subtle. And it was interesting because players recognize, and I'm a firm believer, if, you know, if, if players are not actively involved in the session, but they see that the session is just starting or just about to start then you know they want to be in this session they want to be part of it yeah yeah it's probably going to be if if they see a boring mundane warm-up every day they're probably going to be late for that aren't they correct yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know i want to I, I agree i agree with you there yeah yeah um but is this is it yeah is it's you just gotta you just gotta adapt it was frustrating i you know i have to admit first 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 few months because you're having to adapt and and you're like, wow, this is this is this is different. But I say that you know, once you go over the hump, <laughs> and you and you go over the hump, and then it's there's a there's a moment of sanity, and then you realise that yep, this is just the way with which it is in this country. You know, it's going to be different somewhere else. So I I have to adapt, but really making sure I can still make sure that I I want the players to get out of what I want them to get out of for that session. I would imagine a challenge with them be once you get that role would be help. Obviously, you don't have a budget to get uh, five, six different coaches in around the world, so you would have to draw from a pool that would wouldn't be that big. Is it is it hard to get to kind of differentiate between someone who's got a good heart and not a very good coach, or someone who's a good coach and then not reliable? And how do you manage that? Yeah, I just go back to the latter. Really, is in terms of just reliability. Because the culture was the way in which it was. I mean, you you know, you're living on an island in the middle of the Pacific. You know, it's 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 paradise, <laughs> um, to be honest. And he, you, you know, that that you I would, you know, if, if I say right, Gary, we'll meet for a coffee at ten thirty. Like the is, you'll probably be there at ten twenty five. But you, you know, it's and we pride it. And if you're late, it's like, oh, you know, sorry, you know, I was just chasing or whatever else. But it's just different over there. You know, so for me, reliability was the biggest thing, and it was the keenness of, of the local coaches. And you know, I was I was fortunate; I was able to foster some good people over there that that I knew that would be part of the national teams. My my job really was to prepare, set set up, um, but ultimately, I wasn't going to lead those teams into international tournaments. That should be the local coaches and there was some really really good coaches locally that really brought into that everyone has this vision don't they of finishing on the pitch from uh getting on the beach and then relaxing with a coffee or a, or a nice cold beverage somewhere but it's i'd imagine it's the the challenges that are culturally are the the punctuality and the way of communicating is is there a would there be issues with Holding players accountable, um, I suppose, co- communication challenges. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's others that can relate to this in in a way with which you would communicate with players. You know, certainly in the Cook Islands, you, you know, you couldn't openly um, communicate in a 
not so good way towards a particular player in front of the whole wider group because that would almost be perceived as, you know, you're shaming that player. So you'd have to direct those messages in a different way, you know, and or pull that player to one side after the session and just have a, you know, and, and again, really good skills for me because you have, you have to learn to adapt to the environment. But how do you how do you learn those norms, Jess? Because is that trial and error, or do you have someone who's? I mean, do you have a, a a mirror or someone who's saying like, "Hey, listen, that doesn't work here," or or yeah, how's that process work? Yeah, I mean, I I, I done I done a lot of research prior to me going to the country, but I also pulled upon um, the people that were on the ground and actually lived in the Cook Islands, and you know, for me, it was present at the time. So he he would actively support me. The general secretary was outstanding. She would almost mentor me in this. And, and it really, a lot of it was through observation as well. And just the amount of games that I was able to go and observe. And because the island was so small, the main island, which I lived on, I mean, it was 32 kilometers in circumference. And um, you could watch, because all the games took place across Wednesday to Saturday, but on the Saturday you could watch anything up to six to eight games you know from under 14s up to senior level so you know i got a lot i got a lot out of watching coaches but actually communicating with coaches and talking with coaches the local coaches um and and that was how i learned i almost learned along the way and you know there's a lot of really good people over there that were you know they helped to guide me along that Let's talk about Pachuca. Six-week trip to Mexico. Can you tell us why you, you chose that club or why you chose that culture specifically? Because the Mexican football culture, I, I think, in America is... Like, we don't know. We kind of just... They're the arch rivals. We don't know a lot about them, but it's a it's a fascinating culture. Yeah, it is. I've been back there numerous times before, and... To cut a long story short, I was there in 2013 in a place called Monclova, just outside um, Monterey. And it's a, it's a bit like being in the desert. And I was there as, for really to as a showcase event, trial games, and I was recruiting players um, on behalf of the academy in New Zealand that we had at the time, but we worked closely with Chelsea. And so my, my job really was to go and observe players. So... Anyway, I identified some players, and one of these players um, was a player called El Junio Pesuto, and he was just 12 at the time. And off of that trip, um, him and his brother as well, actually, um, we recruited those players to New Zealand, and then we moved the academy, which subsequently became the Wellington Phoenix Football Academy in Wellington, New Zealand. And so he spent a... Um, a good amount of time with us um, within the academy. And then he came back to Pachuca and now he's under 17 national team captain as well. So there's a connection there, but also I've always done a lot of research around not just Mexican clubs, but clubs around the world. And Pachuca has always been a club that has always, always done a really good job in terms of elite youth development. I think, you know, and don't hold me to this, but they've you know, made over a hundred million um, dollars in the last five years or whatever, just in moving players onto Europe. They have a very, very unique model around the club. Um, they don't predominantly sell their best young talent to Mexican clubs because that would drive up their competition. So they end up selling them to clubs in Europe if they can. 
so yeah, that was so I'd done a lot of research around Pachuca, and it was a club that I always, always wanted to visit. So I was very fortunate, um, that um, yeah, the club just gave me complete free access. Yeah, yeah, obviously followed it, and with great envy looking at the following your day-to-day picks obviously there's some food picks I was like god I'd even just love there to go there on holidays but yeah I said Pachuca we, we talked on text that Pachuca came and visited Bakersfield yeah, last year yeah um, you mentioned it there's a there's a Dutch influence there right there is you've done your research Gary yeah 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 um, the, there was a guy Hans Vestervoff who's got a very strong reputation in not just Pachuca but Mexico as well I think he's managed Chivas Guadalajara as well a few years ago so the actual game model within the academy is all built around his and the Dutch um, Dutch system philosophy. And this is something that they've held very closely for a number of years. And his son actually um, has been within the academy for a number of years and he he's head coach in the 17s as well. And there's a quite a, it's a bit of a, we joked about it, but it's a bit of a UN um, coaching staff because there's, um head of head of recruitment and scouting is from Belgium. Um there's uh, coaches from Chile, from Argentina, Colombia. So it's it's quite quite a spread out mix of uh, different coaches, but it works very, very well. So for someone who has obviously seen the lavish lifestyle and academy systems in England, how do they manage motivation or how is the how does it aesthetically look compared to the beautiful million, multi-million dollar arenas that young kids are now going into over there? It's funny, um, I got asked that question a lot by the coaches within the academy and I was fortunate the, um, the head of youth, um, who's actually from Boca Juniors, Alfredo Altaeri, he, um, he asked me to present to all the academy stuff and that was actually one of the questions that they um, <laughs> really wanted to know. And, and it's funny, Gary, I mean, you know, like like yourself and as coaches, we get the opportunity very fortunately to travel to different professional clubs around the world. And the facilities there are incredible. Um, and everything is completely um, holistically um, combined. They have close to 200 players on one central hub university site. So they're completely immersed in football, education, um, they have a hospital on site, full rehab facilities. Um, you name it, they've got it. The women's setup is incredible. They have their own standalone facility, brand new. Um, you name it, they've got it. It is really, really high spec. And I was very, very impressed. But I guess for me, it always comes back down to environment and people. And that was, I mean, it was like a study visit for me. And, you know, that was something I really looked at and closely on a day-to-day basis and built relationships with coaches to, to talk to them about it as well. And um, facilities is one thing, but you have to be able to be in a position to have real good people to develop players. And Pachuca just ticked all those boxes. I was I was really, really impressed. Yeah, on that development side then, I'm, I, I think over here we've, we're so critical now about these these players, the entitlement, the lack of motivation, the lack of responsibility, accountability, all these kind of personality traits. How yeah. how are they getting that? You mentioned, you know, the facilities of they're obviously taking care of these people. How are they still ingraining that humility or that motivation? How are they balancing that? 
It's, it's funny because um, I was actually having a conversation with a sporting director one day and it was around that as well. And they've had players, their scouting network is comprehensive. They've got over 20 full-time staff in Mexico and they, um, you know, they're recruiting, you know, players with real, real challenging backgrounds, you know, home lives that are very, very difficult. And for me, it's, it was all geared around their support mechanisms that they had in place and they had a real strong um, sense of welfare of the players. Um, you know, they had an, an uh, on-site sports psychologist and she would be watching all the games, all the training sessions, speaking to players regularly. Um, that was just one element. Um, there was the schooling and the accommodation all around it as well. But in terms of, it was just a level of competition, Gary. And, you know, you're looking at, the, they're recruiting, for me, the best players in terms of elite youth development in Mexico into one central hub and you know, there's a there's great expectation, there's great responsibility. The players feel a lot of pressure within the environment, um, that they're performing not just themselves, but more likely for their families as well. And you know, the, to be honest, the environment itself was enough motivation for the players, and it was just a, it was just a it just breeded so much activity on a day to day basis, and just the amount of games that they were playing as well. They're playing anything up to fifty, sixty games, and and also, I guess the biggest thing for me, you talk about motivation, and this is something I noticed on day two when I was in, in the club, because the first team, and this is quite rare as well, I know it happens in some clubs around the world, but the first team are completely running in unison with the other academy squads, and they're, you know, they're walking through the same facilities, they're walking past these players that have played in two, three World Cups, they play for Mexico, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and academy players are walking past these players and they're, and they're having conversations. And I said to the club, I said, you can't take examples like that for granted because that's very, very unique in that, you know, you've got these young aspiring academy players and they're literally seeing their idols on a day-to-day basis. And it was really, really powerful. And just the fact that with the amount of teams that had operating and they owned clubs in Chile and Argentina as well, there was just a continuing vacuum of players moving up into different age groups, coming back into our own age group. Um, national player-wise, they have 40-plus that are in all the national squads. So it was just a, you know, there was just so, it was such a level of motivation that was just being created every day within the environment. What, what were the differences then mentioned about attitude, the psychological profile of those players? What, what about technical, tactical? What stood out for you on those sides of the game? I mean, they, they, they geared a lot around their Dutch... Dutch system um, and it was a model that I really stick to um, and in terms of the, t- the technical element it was outstanding you know I, ha- I have to say each player um, just in terms of their ability to you know, be multifunctional players be multi-positional players um, you know being able to adapt to um, the state of the game at any one time that technical ability was just outstanding but everything that they're doing in the younger age groups is geared around that as well um, and then just in terms of just a tactical game understanding they just have a set philosophy that just is a clear line all the way through the club to the first team and even with new first team coaches that have come into the club even this new coach who is um, who was actually Rafa Benitez's assistant coach for about 11 years and he he wasn't in a position to bring in five, six, seven 
staff, he was only able to bring himself an assistant and maybe one other staff because the club know that ultimately long term, as much as you'd like to think that that first team coach is going to be there a number of years, the likelihood of that is quite, you know, quite small. So they always had a set game model and philosophy that just went all the way through the club so that, you know, everyone was aware from the under nines, tens, elevens, twelves, thirties. Yeah, just like a typical academy system. But again, not every academy works like that. You mentioned the coaching staff then. I mean, is that, I suppose, that game model being presented? Is it is it 4-3-3? Is it, what way does the system move, I suppose? Very, very dynamic. Predominantly, they play, um, they'll play with a, a four, and then usually they'll play with um, a, a two in front. They usually play a high nine, uh, and then they'll play a three just under, underneath. Um and yeah, it would it will just be a system that will just it will it will stay the same to a degree. And it will only they might play one in front and then push another midfielder high. Um, but predominantly, they just stick with the same sort of two to three different ways of which they play. Um, and it, and it's and I looked upon it and I almost felt like you know it, because one of the questions they asked me was you know what you know what do you think of this? How does it compare to other you know elite academies and what have you? And I guess for me, although you can't pull away from the fact it is development, a lot of it is development, but, you know, are they still competing and are they still, you know, getting results at the academy level? And they are. I mean, they're under 15s at the top top of their league. The other academy teams are, you know, the under 17s are like third in the league. So if, if, if it wasn't the fact that they were competitive and achieving results, then you'd probably have to question it. But certainly it's something that works very, very well for them. The Mexican game, I'm going to throw a massive generalisation here, so correct me and disagree with me. Um, Go for it. It can, it can be really, really slow at times, which allows to get 10 players behind a ball and t- try to break that down. And Has the game, that's the last time I've really watched Mexico, Mexican league football um, in terms of the first league and, and describing the, the elite game over there. Um, how did you view that? It's, yeah, it's right, Gary. I, I guess for me, that's one of the things I actually analysed quite a lot when I, I had the opportunity. I mean, you know, it's just a football culture country. So, I mean, I, I don't even know how many live games I watched in that six months. It was, I don't know, maybe close to 35, 40 games. And, and it's funny in, in that there is elements within the game at the professional level where it just, yeah, it, it slows down. But then I'd just say in terms of, I, I was so impressed in terms of the standard and structure of the league. Um in terms of the technical element, the tactical element, I, I thought I thought it was very, very, very high. And the fact that at times when they do slow the game down, but in other times when they do speed the game up and they break into the final third and they overload and whatever else, they don't break. I mean, they they break and they break at speed. And I actually took in a lot of the female games as well because it's quite a fledgling league. I think it's only in year two professionally. And it's marketed very, very well. They have a game pretty much every night on TV. All the women's games are live on TV. And, you know, I had the ability to watch the women's game and be around the women's setup as well, which I really enjoyed. And um, because it's, you know, it's a really, really um, focused club around the development of players. And I'd just say within the women's, if I'm, you know, given some idea around that, um, because it's such a young fledgling, it was just the athletic ability that they perhaps needed to enhance. I know, obviously, you're in the US, yeah, and 
and the game is completely different. You know, the speed of the game and the effectiveness of the players that play at that level is outstanding. And that was just an element that they probably need to improve upon. So visually on the eye, it might look like a slow game, but certainly when you're watching it live, it just it just feels almost completely different. And definitely watching the men's, it was very, very good standard. Very good standard. I was very impressed. The add-ons, I mean, what's their take on sports science well, in comparison? Because we seem mesmerized by sports science at the minute over here and analysis technology is, is, is growing at a, at a phenomenal rate. Is it something that they see value in as well? Oh, very much so, yeah. I mean, uh, I spent some time with the head of sports science and he was a guy that was out there club in Chile. And, you know, they, they monitor everything. Everything is, you know, as one of my questions really, you know, just, just I was in of interest really from my experience and where I've worked and, and they work things to a very, very high standard in terms of sports science and management of the players daily. Um, everything is geared around the actual... Uh, individual in the team and it's very very well managed and and the coaches because they're so experienced because they've been in the environment for a long time um they just do it and you know it's they, they do it without even know that they're doing it i guess and that comes through experience and just the management of the training sessions and by about week two it was so evident that you could just tell in terms of right this is a this is a deload session or this is a session we're gonna you know really hit on the volume quite high and then th- there was an element within the club that they do feel they need to improve upon which I guess for a lot of clubs as well is just in terms of the actual individual performance mm. um, and so in terms of performance analysis yeah all the academy games they're, they're like, you can watch those academy game lives um, through the League MX website and so you know we'd be at an under 20 game and we would be watching the the replays, you know, on iPhone. So yeah, all the players have access to that. It's very, very modernised, very modernised. Brilliant. Mm. Definitely on my uh, on my list to go down. Yeah, well, you have to let me know, Gary, if you, if you wanted to make a visit down there. Not a problem. Thanks so much to Jess for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. A couple of takeaways for me, firstly, in the philosophy and then in the Cook Islands piece, how much he talked about authenticity, uh, being true to yourself and your beliefs. And I think it's a really, really good takeaway for young coaches to get that right, how to be true to yourself. Because when you go to these teams and if you get an opportunity to go to a different country, being true to what you're going to be about and being authentic, that allows you to be able to simplify and be able to adapt a lot quicker in order to get buy-in from your players um so if you go and you're you're always trying to be somebody else or you're always trying to impress somebody else it's just not going to work so it's clear that jess has spent time in his development years as a coach getting that right and obviously it shows that it pays off later down the line and the second one then was was a big one for me taking responsibility towards exposing yourself to these potential opportunities so People think that these club visits are fun. You know, you get to sit around and talk to coaches and watch training sessions. But after the podcast, Jess and I spoke for about 30 minutes about how much work goes into these visits. You know, you're in at 7, 8 a.m. talking to someone and you leave at 9, 10 a.m. talking to a different level. And you're always, always, always on the go 
trying to get information, but also trying to give information. Uh, and I think it's it's really, really important that we dedicate time. You know, we're intentional about connecting with people, but we're also intentional about adding value to the relationship because you can't go to Pachuca for six weeks and then just take, take, take. It's important that you give to them. And, you know, he dropped in that he gave a presentation and he did a couple of lectures with the coaches, but I'm sure he was doing stuff every day in order to give them an insight to where he's been and adding value towards what they were doing, giving them different insights on different things. And and I think that's really, really important for coaches as we look at networking and connecting that we we don't just see it as a take, take, take transaction. We see it as, well, we have to give as well in that there. And I think the more you give, the more people respect you and the more they learn about you and then the more they are probably willing to work with you in the future or even help you uh, expose you to different opportunities so really enjoyed that I think that's a big big one today and coaches is you know everyone's trying to and they should be in social media and in LinkedIn everyone's trying to get to know one another but I think you've got to approach it the right way and that is you know what can I do for you rather than what can you do for me as always, appreciate you listening and we'd love to know your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram, uh, what you enjoyed, what stood out for you, what you agreed with, maybe what you didn't disagree with, all that good stuff. Love hearing from coaches um, and the takeaways that they have as well. So please don't be afraid to reach out. Always appreciate you listening. Thanks for the support of the podcast. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions and resources head on over to coach kernine on facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com